Welcome to another day of Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers the ongoing mystery question of who killed Laura Palmer. Up to this point, we have certain uh, clues, some evidence from this episode. We're going to gather that together, look at what we've learned so far in the series, and see where that uh, takes us. No spoilers, of course, at this point. And then we're also going to look at the structure of the episode, how the drama unfolds act to act between the commercial breaks, uh, how the uh, material is organized so that we have all the Log Lady and Jock stuff at one point. We have that great northern party near the end, a lot of disparate threads early on and kind of breaking that down. Make sure to check out my illustrated companion too, uh, linked below, that has more details that you can follow along with to kind of organize the material in a visual way. Uh, through text, and then also screenshots of the different uh, parts of the investigation. Uh, just if you're, especially if you're watching the show for the first time and you're kind of following along with that procedural aspect there, I think that can be interesting to look at. Also helpful for yesterday's podcast because I wasn't able to get the full show notes in time. I was kind of in a rush. And uh, by the time this goes up, yesterday's um, podcast description will be in there, but uh, it was already on that on that companion on my site. So Really, whenever you're going through these podcasts, that's a great, uh, both kind of fun thing to look at, where it's got the character rankings just spelled out right there, the Time Magazine cover, the Time images from the time. It it gives you a visual context to go with the audio you're getting in this experience. So on to the question, who killed Laura Palmer? I've reorganized and streamlined this section now that we're breaking down into sort of these separate investigations. Hopefully it becomes a little more manageable here. Here are the new clues by Active Investigations. The police and FBI, uh, in the for as far as like the murder and the surrounding incidents go, one area of inquiry is the bloody shirt. They find that the blood on Leo's shirt is AB negative. It's not Laura's. Cooper IDs it as Jacques as Jacques' blood, and surprisingly, Doc confirms this. Everyone's kind of astonished that he predicted it. Although, among, you know, astonishing Cooper things, I don't, <laughs> I can kind of see why he would assume that might be Jacques' blood. Another area of inquiry is the log lady witnessing the night of the murder via her log. And she has a full quote here, which is worth reading, the way that she describes this. Dark, laughing, the owls were flying, many things were blocked. Two men, two girls. Flashlights passed by in the woods over the ridge. The owls were near. The dark was pressing in on her. Quiet then. Later, footsteps. One man passed by. Screams far away. Terrible. Terrible. One voice. Girl. Further up over the ridge, the owls were silent. So the detectives recognized from the story that there were two girls with two men, and then later there was one man, a different man, who came and took the two girls. So they realized that the girls were almost certainly Laura and Renette. The men were probably Jacques and Leo, but who's the third man? Another area of inquiry is Waldo the bird's bite marks. Uh, we find the bird cage with Waldo inside Jacques' cabin. So that seems to confirm that the bird was probably there with Laura the night she died. Another area of inquiry is connection, the connection to One-Eyed Jacks and the poker chip in her stomach. And Cooper finds the chip with a missing piece stored in a cuckoo clock in the cabin with Harry's help. Another area of inquiry is just the general Jacques connection to Laura. 
The cops find that there's blood on the ground and also a spool of twine, which seems to be Finley's fine twine. The ultimate conclusion they can draw is that she was definitely at Jacques's cabin the night she was murdered. As far as the her life leading up to, the, to her death, the police and FBI, uh, one of their areas of inquiry, really the only one that they're focused on in this episode, is her sex work and the relationship to Jacques and Renette. So Cooper says, uh, says to Harry, you remember that ad with the picture of Renette Pulaski? Harry says that they traced it. It came to the magazine in a plain envelope without a name. And Cooper says the magazine's a clearinghouse. Readers write letters in response to the ads and mail them into the magazine. The magazine forwards them over to the advertisers. No direct contact. Renette received her letters at this post office box. They recognize a local zip code, and he guesses that this post office box will be registered under the name of Jacques Renault. Sure, sure enough, uh, later Hawk returns and he says that P.O. box was registered to Jacques Renault, but there are two different ad numbers on the envelopes they're looking at, so they realize he wasn't just, like, representing Renette. They look at the ad number in the magazine, they see a woman whose face is not shown, and based on the drapes behind her, Cooper decides this has got to be Lark, because he's already seen in a photo displayed in Jacques' apartment that his... Cab he has a cabin out in the woods, it has red curtains. And uh he says, you know, why would an apartment dweller like Jacques buy fifty gallons of heating oil? And Hawk says, Well, Jacques' brother said something about a place up near the state line. So now they have that destination and that's where they find all that evidence that ties directly to the night of her death. So this search into kind of her past associations and everything, as well as sort of spinning off from some of the crime scene stuff, leads them directly to this. To, to more evidence. And Laura's photo in the description, uh, or photo in the magazine, has the description, young student requests education in the ways of love. Only generous, mature men need apply. Audrey in this episode sets herself up at horns, but she doesn't discover anything yet about Laura. For the Donna, James, and Maddie investigation, which Audrey doesn't seem to have much to do with at this point, but they brought Maddie in, the only thing they find out this episode is that Laura had a hiding spot in her bedpost where she hid a tape that she had for Mr. J for Dr. Jacoby. And speaking of Jacoby, his own kind of impromptu investigation reveals that it was Laura's idea to sell drugs to feed her addiction. She corrupted Bobby, not vice versa, at least according to Bobby, and he seems pretty convincing in this. He also finds out, or he confirms, something he apparently knew from probably from treating Laura, that she laughed at Bobby when he cried after they had sex. And he confirms a lot of what he knew or suspected about Laura from Bobby kind of prodding him with leading questions and getting Bobby to unleash all this information about Laura, that she was haunted, she wanted to be good, but she lashed out at others because she apparently hated herself. Something that's known to us already but is new to the characters is that Leo's truck is in Flesh World. There's a photo of it in there. And it's worth noting that, uh, you know, Cooper mentions this. And then we use the same sort of transition as from the pilot, where we are switching from the magazine photo to the Johnson house. There's nothing new on the serial killer for the fifth episode now. They haven't mentioned it. They haven't mentioned any of her charity as like a mystery clue for this is the third episode where that hasn't come up and it's the second episode where nothing no sort of community stuff has tied into her her death or her mystery or life leading up to that so to gather the clues and paint the big picture 
Leo's shirt does not demonstrate that Laura had a violent encounter with either him or Jacques the night she died, but she was definitely at Jacques's cabin, and the log lady implies that there was a third man involved with her killing. She, Renette, and Jacques would solicit partners through Flesh World magazine. She wanted Bobby to sell drugs to supply her habit and mocked him when they first slept together. She tried to overcome her self-loathing but had a dark view of humanity that often manifested as manipulation of others, and she possessed tapes that she had sent to Jacoby. In short, Laura was a publicly generous and privately troubled young woman who struggled to overcome self-loathing. She worked at Ben's department store, was involved in criminal networks, and was tortured and murdered by a possibly occultist serial killer who may be her mystery man. As one might expect from a frost work, the structure has a sensible flow, with dramatic sequences organized into acts, even as they logically follow from one another. This flow extends beyond the bounds of the episode itself to the larger arc that has unfolded since early in episode 4, linking together imaginative, absorbing set pieces as one discovery of evidence leads to another, and one physical location opens the door to its companion across town. The one-armed man's motel, to Lydecker's clinic, to Jacques' apartment, to Jacques' cabin, and, Cooper suggests after discovering the chips, One-Eyed Jacks is on the horizon. More and more, it seems that episodes one through three existed to plant many seeds that episodes four and on could cultivate. Now, with the journey into the woods, is the perfect time for us to finally find out what the logs saw, for example. Commercials run between Ed's devastated reaction to Norma's departure and Audrey's department store interview at 14 minutes, Shelley viewing Montana's laughter on Invitation to Love after Hank's introduction to the diner, and the Briggs family in family therapy at 23 minutes, and Cooper discovering the poker chip at Jacques' cabin and Josie waiting outside the Great Northern Party at 34 minutes. Again, we have long stretches between the breaks, but we're also witnessing almost unprecedented focus inside several of these arcs, echoing but arguably, arguably extending the similar focus in episode 3. The first act, consisting of six scenes, is anchored in Jacques' apartment, which extends even into the action at the Great Northern and the Johnson House, while also making room for some separate stories. The second act, four, maybe five scenes, one overlaps with another in the same location, is more scattered than the others anchored, if anything, by the Donna James material, but also spending half of its runtime concentrating on the Double R Diner. With just three scenes, the third act is where the narrative really begins to soar, appropriately given the avian imagery. After one scene at Jacoby's office, geographically but not thematically distant from what's to come, the narrative sticks with the sheriff's team for a full seven minutes, as they visit two woodland cabins, and it's here that the show is really able to cultivate a sustained atmosphere. Finally, the fourth act is as organized around the party as the middle section of episode three was around the funeral, except there's much more going on here, and so we're able to occasionally cut away and back again between Maddie's, Leo's, and Shelley's stories, as well as within many points of view at the party itself, before we finally end with Cooper and Audrey which is a nicely developed bookend to their scene together near the episode's beginning. In a way, the Icelander party is able to achieve what the funeral couldn't as a town event. The episode 3 script included many little exchanges between characters in the cemetery, but they had to be streamlined in the edit, essentially reduced to a set of uh, silence close-ups. This was appropriate, 
as it refocused attention on Lara at her own memorial, but we lost the opportunity to interweave the many storylines. Here, that's much more possible. In the previously on recap, we start with the Timber Falls Motel. We see Josie taking pictures there. Ben asks, where's the book that spells bankruptcy? And we see Catherine hiding it. Maddie introduces herself to James. Jacoby says, Laura had secrets. Renette is circled in Flesh World. And Audrey says, maybe he'll realize that I'm the woman of his dreams because I'm going to help him figure out who killed Laura, as we see Coop sipping coffee and sorting files. The log lady says, my log saw something that night. Shelley gives Bobby Leo's shirt. Leland leaps onto a coffin. Bobby says Leo won't be a problem as Shelley rubs her gun up against her chest. Bobby runs from Jock's apartment. Coop shows the shirt and the initials to Harry. And Norma hears over the phone, Hank got his parole. Hank holds a domino and then Josie sees the domino sketch. And we end on him telling her over the phone, catch you later. These previously on recaps keep getting longer and longer, it seems like. There's just so much information they want viewers to keep track of, and they've got to consider, too, some viewers may have tuned out and are tuning back in and missed all this stuff and don't remember. Like, this is a difficult show to follow. I mean, look at all the time we spend on these plots on these podcasts. It's like, it is a challenge, especially for viewers at this time. They don't have podcasts. They don't have message boards, except for the few people on Usenet. A lot of them don't have VCRs even or, you know, they're not taping it, so they're just trying to follow it at the time if they're a casual viewer. This was a show made for niche viewers and pretty hard for casual ones to keep track of. The number one storyline in episode five with more scenes than any storyline has had in any previous episode, including the pilot, which was twice this length, you know, probably twice as many scenes. And the first time that it's something not to do with Laura the top storyline is the Ghostwood Deal sawmill plot. That has 16 scenes in this episode by my count. Pretty amazing to, to think about. And now part of that granted is you have a long sequence at the Great Northern where we're cutting back and forth between different characters and moments and Ben's office and back in the main uh, timber room where they're having the party. So maybe you could say, oh, well, that's all kind of one, but it's a pretty long scene. So I think it's fair to divide it up that way. And uh, you know, I'm not doing these by screen time, so I'm not sure, but that's pretty significant. And I just find it very notable that this is the first time, even with all the stuff with the log lady and Jock, that whole long sequence that's got nothing to do with the sawmill fire and uh, is, is very centered on the Lara stories that uh, emerged in the pilot and with the scene with Ben and Jacoby again with Lara. So for all the Lara-centric aspects of this episode, the number one story with twice as many as we usually get in terms of, you know, twice as many scenes is that B plot, so to speak. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also become a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. Tomorrow we'll talk about the different scenes in this episode, uh, but focus on the ones that have to do with Laura Palmer. So continuing this theme here of the mystery and now looking at it in terms of how it plays out in the interactions between the other characters. See you tomorrow.